Welcome to the ABHA Listen and Learn Podcast, where we discuss the latest issues related to hearing and balance healthcare. And now, here are your hosts, Dr. Dana Day and Dr. Susan Schmidt. Hello, I'm Dr. Dana Day. And I am Dr. Susan Schmidt, and welcome to ABHA Listen and Learn Podcast, hosted by Arizona Balance and Hearing. And this is where we discuss all the latest and all the greatest advances in testing and treatment of all hearing and balance issues. Education is at the heart of our core values at ABHA. One, Dr. Schmidt and I take very seriously the education of both ourselves and mostly of our patients. That is why we are here today. So if anyone who is listening has any specific questions you would like answered on this podcast, please go to questions at arizonabalance.com and Arizona is spelled out questions at arizonabalance.com and we will be sure to answer them in one of our upcoming podcasts. Also, don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. So we are so excited. We are doing part two of When Hearing Aids Are Not Enough. Mm-hmm. And we have with us back Dr. Emily Camacho. And um, I am just so excited to hear the rest of our podcast. Uh, uh, well, to hear her. Right. And um, before we make your introduction, we are just blown away by this technology that you have brought in. <laughs> and I know that one of the things that you talked about on Tips and Tricks is work smarter, not harder. And I think you're a master of it. And you. you get to sit here and look gorgeous with your hair and we have to wear headphones and you're definitely smarter than I am. So tell us about this getup that you got here. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, so yes, I always recommend work smarter not harder. You don't want to be exhausted at the end of the day. I'm sure if you went to a conference and you have normal hearing, being at a conference all day listening to people, that's exhausting. But if you have hearing loss on top of that, you're you're kind of, you know, you're bound to have listening fatigue at the very end of the day and don't want to do anything. So what I have here is I brought my uh, cochlear multi-mic or mini-mic 2 plus is what they call it. And it is connected to an audio jack. So the auxiliary cord that you use to plug in your, I don't know if you still have an iPod or something like that, or the older iPhones where you plug in that audio jack. Or an older car. Or my, my kids are like, what, mom? What is this AX, AUX thing? That <laughs> AUX thing is just what that, yep, that's just what it's for. And it's connected to the headset, uh, I guess, power source. So I'm able to hear everyone's voices through this. And I can hear myself talking as well. And I don't have to use headphones. So previously, at the first podcast, I just fit my processors in the headphones that we're using so that I can rest the headset to fit comfortably. But with the mini mic or, yeah, the mini mic 2 Plus, I'm I'm headphone free, I guess. And I'm hearing everyone just fine. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yes. That is great. So accessories are a good thing. Yes, um, absolutely. And we were talking about that last time. Yes. And there's so many different ones. Right. So if um, you're out there and you have cochlear implant or hearing aids and you want to learn more about the accessories, talk to your audiologist or give us a call, make an appointment. We'll talk to you about all that's available to you because there are some good ones. Definitely, definitely. All right, so let me just introduce our guest speaker, um, Dr. Emily Camacho, again. Um, we introduced her um, in our previous podcast, but just in case you you weren't um, listening to that one yet, I would go back if you haven't. <laughs> um, but I want to just introduce her briefly again. Um, she is an engagement manager from Cochlear Americas. Her role is to provide patients and families with information about Cochlear's bone conduction hearing solutions and cochlear implants from the very beginning stages of gathering information leading all the way up to the surgery. So Dr. Camacho um, obtained her AUD, which is a doctor of audiology with a pediatric audiology specialization from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, 
after obtaining a Bachelor of Science in Speech and Language Pathology and Audiology and a Bachelor of Arts in American Sign Language slash Deaf Studies at California State University in Sacramento. Um, as a bilateral cochlear implant recipient, yes, you did hear that, um, <laughs> she is a recipient of bilateral, cochle bilateral cochlear implants. Um, she is passionate about supporting the deaf and hard of hearing individuals throughout their hearing journey, promoting advocacy and access to better communication and raising awareness about implantable hearing solutions within the local community. Welcome. Dr. Camacho, welcome again. Welcome back. Thank it's great. you. And why we don't want to go over your totally your, your story, just before we get started, for those of you that haven't gone back but will go back and listen to the previous episode, um, you were not born deaf. Correct. Yes. And you started out as a hearing individual, um, three and a half, I think you said, yeah. that you noticed wore hearing aids up until... Early 20s. Your early 20s. And then due to some changes in your hearing, you made the um, the decision to go to for implantation, right ear first, then left ear. So that kind of gives our listeners a little bit of a background as we dive back into mm -hmm. the cochlear implants and bone-anchored hearing aids, which we haven't really talked about yet. Right. Okay. Right. Um, so let's let's start with um, last time we were talking about um, if somebody had a sudden, um, severe, profound um, hearing loss on one side and kind of normal hearing on the other side, and and they are now a cochlear implant um, candidate, um, depending on the results of the testing. So when so when they are implanted on one side. Um, then they kind of get back the use of their like localization. So where sounds are coming from, um, and they're able to process speech better because they're, they have access to both sides of their brain, which is really important. Um, as we know about auditory processing mm -hmm. <laughs> issues as well, yeah. um, we need that, um, to process, um, speech and now become overwhelmed. Um, so that's the single sided, um, kind of deafness. So, so how about if somebody has um, bilateral um, severe hearing loss? So, with a cochlear implant, um, what is their experience? What kind of gain do they get in their lives? So, for a bilateral cochlear, uh, are you talking about you know if they just start off with one cochlear implant, or if they were to proceed with getting both at the same time? Um, either, okay. either. So, typically, pediatric population. Most people, depending on the age of the child, mm -hmm. the younger they are, the more often they recommend getting both cochlear implants simultaneously because of that critical period for language acquisition or spoken language acquisition. Um, so from that birth to three age, that's your critical language development period. Mm -hmm. And so the younger the child is, that's what they tend to opt towards. Mm -hmm. For the adult population, and you know, this is something that I, I did so I can speak to this, and this is what the majority of the adult population does, and that's getting one cochlear implant at a time if they are a candidate in both ears. Okay. And so that would be considered a bimodal candidate or bimodal recipient, so to speak, if they get the cochlear implant. What people report and what I noticed was that improvement in localization. It was significantly better versus having asymmetrical hearing loss after that sudden drop in hearing sensitivity. It wasn't perfect for the localizing of sound, but it definitely was an improvement because I knew that things were now on this side, my right side, and I was hearing things that were on my right side. And so that, in addition to access to speech sounds, because that's what a cochlear implant was, you know, created for, access to speech. First and foremost, it's a speech sound processor. So having access to those high-frequency sounds or high-pitched sounds, consonant sounds, that is the clarity of speech. That is what helped uh, improve access to. So, And towards the end, when I was a candidate, the low frequency hearing I could still hear with my hearing aid and mm -hmm. that brought the naturalness of sound that made things sound full, especially in the beginning stages of getting the cochlear implant. And I had the speech, the access to speech sounds on the right side. So it was like a harmonious synchrony of, okay, I can't hear speech in my hearing aid ear. I can pick that up with my cochlear implant. 
I can't really make out the fullness of music just yet, or the naturalness and sound quality just yet with my cochlear implant. That's where my hearing aid comes in. So it really was a nice balance between the two. And it took a further decline in my left ear that made me want to proceed to get the bilateral, the second side done. That's interesting because based on, you know, what we know about neuroplasticity and um, how the brain will rewire itself, if you will, um, how long do you think it took your brain to say, okay, this, uh, this side, which is a cochlear implant, um, this sound sounds like this and this sound sounds like that and then put it together. And then again, when you went to that bilateral mode, do you think there was a, a time where it was still trying to figure out what was being, what the auditory signal was really about? I think when only listening with one ear, I knew I was missing something. Like I said, I was missing the low frequency naturalness. Because again, in the beginning stages, things sound very odd. They sound robotic, mechanical. I mean, for me, it sounded like a robotic Alvin and the Chipmunks. Like, so <laughs> everyone sounded like they were Alvin and Alvin and the Chipmunks. Didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. So you all sounded the same. <laughs> and, you know, the, with time and with programming, so there's a reason for why it sounds like that. Um, but with time and programming, that helped with the fullness and all of that. I did know, though, that I could not listen with just one device. Mm-hmm. I needed both. Mm-hmm. So that was immediate. I think my brain realizing, oh, my gosh, no, I need both ears to hear. You hear better with both ears, no matter what the situation may be. It's always easier. It's always better. So listening with both ears that was an immediate thing for my brain to recognize okay hey this sounds pretty good Mm -hmm. but i knew it just one device i i didn't like it at the time and i think Mm -hmm. that had to do with my brain relying so much on visual cues Mm -hmm. or wanting to rely so much on visual cues especially towards the end before getting the cochlear implant i think my brain was just like i need all the input i can get Mm -hmm. and it really depends on the individual, mm-hmm. a cause of hearing loss, how long they've been deaf for, if they've worn devices, like how quickly you acclimate to that. And I always wore my hearing aids up until that point. So mm-hmm. I think that helped. That put me at a, a benefit mm-hmm. for sure or an advantage for sure. Great. So if you are um, an adult um, or near adult um, and you lose um, your hearing and you start to become um, a candidate for cochlear implantation, um, and maybe you get one or maybe you get two, um, is there, um, is there any, you know, therapies or anything that, that you go through once, once you go through that process of getting that implant implantation? Absolutely. So it's not like a hearing aid where you have it programmed and then you're, you're good to go. You mm-hmm. go see, you you return back for follow-up visits. This takes time. Mm-hmm. And like you've mentioned, the brain is, you know, has neuroplasticity. It's a muscle. You don't, you don't get a hip replacement or a knee replacement and expect to run a marathon. You, you work at it. You go to physical therapy and you train it. So that is something I always encourage all of the patients that I interact with who are interested in getting a surgery, that it's not an overnight fix. And so having that patience is critical. Um, but in terms of auditory therapy, auditory rehabilitation, auditory habilitation, if they've never had access to sounds before, you know, there's a variety of therapy tools that we at Cochlear provide. Um, we have apps. So, for example, we have Cochlear Copilot. I really love that app. It provides auditory listening exercises that you can do, kind of quizzes you on certain sounds. So it'll say, it'll play a sound and then it'll say, was it leaves rustling or dogs barking? And you would just choose like what you heard. Mm -hmm. And so little things like that. If they want to enjoy music more and that was a big part of their life it was it's a big part of mine uh, bring back the beat is another app that we have for our cochlear recipients to where it will play instruments and it'll play rhythmic rhythmic you know melodies or what have you so you can readjust reacclimate and and recognize the sounds that you're hearing 
So we do have those two apps that I think are very beneficial. We have our recipient solutions manager. Um, in this area, it's Bethany Watson. She's also an audiologist by trade. And I essentially hand my candidates turn recipients to Bethany so that she can share this information with them too. We don't want mm-hmm. to have people become recipients and then not get the support that they need. And we know that time is of the essence. You want convenience. You know, you may not be able to travel to a speech pathologist um, for auditory training. I did that because I knew a local um, speech pathology program had graduate student clinicians. They need their hours mm-hmm. to get their licensure. So yep. I asked and I walked in and I said, hey, you know, do you do auditory training? And they said, oh, we haven't had that in a while. Thanks. We're going to revamp that program. Mm-hmm. So once a week for 50 minutes, I went and I just sat there and I was doing those. I know it sounds very cumbersome, but it's like something as simple as saying the word bat versus hat and determining what she said without visual cues. Mm-hmm that that really does go a long way um in the event that they don't have access to that you know they can go online and we have confident conversations over the telephone that there's a website that we have where you can go to that link and it has a topic of the week so you can click on that and there's prompts and you dial the number that's on that website and you read along with the prompts it'll Mm -hmm. have words it'll have a short passage it'll have a long passage and a variety of different talkers. So we do have resources available, but it is critical that you are using your brain. You are going out there. You're forcing mm-hmm. yourself to listen because that's the way that you'll acclimate much more quickly. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I'm considering, um, and I have reached out to one cochlear implant candidate, or recipient, excuse me, um, about trying some, APD auditory processing therapy on them um, because it's kind of the same thing. Um, again, if you have auditory processing, you are not a cochlear implant candidate, <laughs> <laughs> but they hear information differently. Um, so hat doesn't necessarily sound like hat. And um, I have brought one in, a cochlear a bilateral recipient, and we went through the testing, and he is struggling with certain consonant sounds. So um, we're considering doing kind of the same, just to, as a model to see if it would help. Because I think it's the same thing. It's the brain recognizing what the, you know, the S is the S sound. Well, that might be what it is for me, but it may not necessarily be what it is for you. Is that correct, Emily? It can be, yes. Yes. If you've been, you know, profoundly deaf for your entire life, like you need to learn what that sound is yeah. like to you. I mm-hmm. think I have the the history of having better hearing at some point in time and remembering what that sounds like. Right. Speech and music sound very much like it was prior to okay. getting the cochlear implants when I did have good hearing. But yes, you're right. You have to make your brain relearn what it is that they're hearing or learn what it is they're hearing in their environment. Right. So you do see a lot of people doing a lot of head jerks left and right to because they hear something, and I know right. I did it. And I was always saying, what am I hearing? And and that's just, it just took someone to say, that's the water boiling. For exactly. me to be like, okay, that's water boiling. Now I know. Uh-huh. And your brain retains that information. Right, right. I think it's similar to when you go into a new environment and you hear a sound and you look around and you figure out, okay, where's the sound coming from and what is it? And then once you know, it's kind of like, you know, a new, uh, yeah, a new refrigerator or a new air conditioning unit. At first you hear it come on because, well, you're sitting there sweating if it's an air conditioning <laughs> unit in Arizona. <laughs> and it comes on, whoa, yay. But after a while, you don't even know it comes on and off. So it's just reminding your brain this is what it is. And that's that we've talked about it in the content of auditory processing. It's that separation integration. So now I know what it is and it's not harmful and it's not going to hurt me. And I don't really need to pay attention to this anymore. Absolutely. And it's kind of like for children too, with incidental learning, they don't have access to those types of things, those side conversations, those noises in their environment, you know, what you don't have access to, you don't know what's really going on. Right. So that is very true. Your brain kind of acclimates. I don't want to say desensitizes to it, but it's just, you kind of, you don't pay attention to it as much once you recognize what it is. I think it's, um, 
again, that idea of, because you do, you don't pay attention, you're right, but it's not that it, they don't recognize it, it's there. So if I said to somebody, okay, do you hear the fan running? And we all stopped. Yes, we hear the fan running. But before I brought it to your attention, the fan was still running, but you may not have, it, it just wasn't. On your radar. Yeah, or, because it's not front of mind. Yep, exactly. Because we have, you have decided this is not what's important to me to listen to. But for someone with a hearing loss or newly acquired hearing loss, these sounds can get very, I, I remember fitting a gentleman one time and he came back like the next day and he said, I don't think I can keep these hearing aids. And he said, well, it's my zipper is so loud. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I'm thinking the zipper really isn't that loud, right? But he hadn't heard his zipper. And I guess when he heard it, it bothered him. And I said, okay, let's just, let's just zip your coat up and down a couple times. <laughs> and once he I said, see, it's, it's just the zipper. I hear it. You hear it. It's okay. It's like a clock ticking. Right. I hear that clock ticking. Mm -hmm. The next time they come in, they don't hear the clock ticking because it's just, it's okay. Now I know what it is. It's that um, fight or flight mode, I think, yep. at the limbic system and just saying, oh, okay. Yes. But then they'll come in and say, uh, you know, I went to a concert and it was too loud. And I said, yeah, concerts loud. are loud. loud Sorry. Can't fix that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, don't go to the concert. Or, or wear hearing protection. Or, 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 hearing protection or clear up in the back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that I can help you with. Right. But, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I'm out there. I'm hearing this conversation and I'm thinking, gosh. I think I might be a cochlear implant candidate or my father or my daughter or whatever the case may be. What next? Do they, who do they see? Who do they contact? So if they are being managed by an audiologist, that, that would be their first step if they would maybe perhaps if they don't work with cochlear implants in that location or that center, then they would probably know the next best resource or local audiologist that they may be friends with or colleagues in the area that they can recommend. And so they could make that referral on your behalf to get the cochlear implant evaluation done. Um, I will be leaving some materials with you today. Um, oh, so I has my contact information and we also do provide, um, it's called cochlear find a clinic. And so you can type that up. You can find a local center near you or if they wish for me to coordinate that or facilitate that, um, they can be in touch with me. And then I will look on their behalf based on, you know, geographic location, where their nearest office would be. Mm -hmm. And their next step would be to determine whether or not their insurance considers them to be an in-network provider. So typically, you know, if they're interacting with me and they don't know where to go or they haven't yet started that, then they would, um, just let me know that and I provide them with a few options just in case, you know, their insurance isn't accepted at one mm -hmm. clinic or this one's not convenient for them or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. So that would be the next step mm -hmm. to get a referral um, from that audiologist or from a primary care provider if they don't have an audiologist to see someone who works in programs, uh, works with them programs, cochlear implants. Mm -hmm. And then... The audiologist does not do the the surgical component. Correct. That is done by? It's done by an ear, nose, and throat physician. So if you're deemed a candidate audiologically, so we look at the results, they've done a standard hearing test, they have done the cochlear implant evaluation, and that's, you know, you're deemed a candidate, then the next step would be to see an ear, nose, and throat physician. The ear, nose, and throat physician typically recommends imaging of some sorts, whether it's a CT scan, an MRI, or both. And they look at the anatomical structures of the inner ear that the patient is a candidate on, because not everyone is uh, a candidate, even if they have equal hearing loss in, or symmetrical hearing loss in both ears. But they look at the structures. And from there... 
in addition to looking at your medical history, because that's what the ENT also looks at, is are you healthy enough to withstand general anesthesia for this outpatient procedure? Mm -hmm. And then you go from there. Um, is the recovery time for this, you were mentioning this was a outpatient procedure now. Okay. Yep. So how long does a typical surgery last? So the typical surgery, you're under anesthesia from, from one to two hours approximately. It just depends on the surgical technique or how, you know, how efficient they are in the OR. Um, but it's, it's considered to be a pretty routine procedure at this point because of how many people we are, um, you know, giving access to in terms of a cochlear implant. So the actual surgical procedure itself, you're under, anesthesia for one to two hours. Mm -hmm. um, so from check-in to check-out, I would say probably six hours total from, you know, getting prepped all the way to recovering, making sure everything is okay. And you go home same day pending no other health complications arise. And it's very rare that they do unless you have some sort of medical history that, you know, they stipulate prior to saying, you know what, you might be an inpatient surgery based on your medical history. We'll keep you uh, inpatient, but majority of healthy um, candidates turn recipients, they're, they go home same day. Okay. Um, and then as far as going back to their normal activities in life, um, how does that look after they go home? So they will, um, obviously, they if they are wearing a hearing device or hearing aid on that side, it's typically recommended not to so that you give your time, your ear time to heal. Um, and I would say most people are back to their normal routine, pen, like with the exception of a few light restrictions within the week. So the first three to four days, you want to rest and you know get as much sleep and fluids and all of that as you can. You want to recover. Um, so things just like lifting things heavy, you want to avoid for at least the first couple of weeks. Um, Try not to blow your nose too hard um, <laughs> because that pressure, there is some ear pressure and fullness and, and tinnitus as well post-surgery that will it typically does subside over time and feeling off balance too. I, I know I've experienced that personally and some other people do because of how close the hearing and balance nerves are together. Um, so within a week, I would say people are back to their usual routine with some light restrictions. Okay. And then you mentioned earlier that the cochlear implant is not active on the day of surgery and it, you delay that for how long? It depends on the surgeon and the center and of course the availability of, you know, scheduling these appointments, mm -hmm. but typically it's between two to four weeks after the surgery where you see the audiologist and they turn on the implant for the first time. Okay. All right. So what, so just so I, our listeners understand, so you go in to the outpatient surgery, you have the um, electrical device, if you will, implanted um, at that time by the surgeon, but you don't leave with the processor that goes on the external part, which if we, you call it a processor for, for those out there just listening, it's not a hearing aid, but think about the hearing aid as it it's in the out it, the external part of the head or ear. Um, this is the processor that goes on the external part. Correct. And so, what do your those patients normally do in the two to four weeks when they have no auditory input in onto that side, if you will? I, I definitely recommend just informing, you know, if you if you are still a working adult, let your supervisor know, your colleagues know that you're undergoing this sort of procedure and that you won't have the same access to sound as you had before while you're in recovery. So just letting everyone around you become aware of that, family mm -hmm. members, friends, colleagues, coworkers. If you're, you know, a pediatric patient, I'm sure the parents or families, caregivers will inform their school, their teachers, their um, therapists that they have in place for that. That you just let them be aware mm -hmm. that it, it may be challenging to hear, um, or more challenging to hear while they're in that recovery period. Mm -hmm. um, most people tend to do it during a break for school, like a summer break or, you know, a vacation time just so they can recover and not have to be 
struggling as much. But again, use those accessories if you have them, especially for the ear that you're having, you know, if you have a hearing aid on the other side, definitely take advantage of those tools. You rely on visual cues. Just set yourself up for success. Mm-hmm. Communication strategies are key. You want mm-hmm. people to be in the know of what you are about to go through. Um, but it, it can feel a little odd because, it again, it's, it's not something you're used to. Mm-hmm. And without a hearing device on that side while you're recovering, it can feel a little strange, mm-hmm. um, depending if they've had hearing, especially um, prior to getting the cochlear implant or prior to being a candidate. I will say, though, that that internal device, so it's a two-part system. So it's an internal cochlear implant with the electrode array and the external sound processor, the part that you see on the ear um, or or on the head itself. We have two different styles for that. Mm -hmm. Um, The electrode array itself, we have the thinnest profile and the style, the design of that internal device is to preserve as much hearing uh, residual low frequency hearing as much as possible. Um, and, and in doing so is some people do have some residual low frequency hearing post surgery, depending on their audiogram, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the goal for that is to determine if maybe we can add a, an acoustic component to that cochlear implant, um, afterwards. Mm-hmm. But it, it's definitely a, a learning curve and a waiting process just to see how much residual hearing is left mm-hmm. and, and in that time period, waiting for activation appointment, just set yourself up for success. That's that's really my best advice I can give. Okay, great. And then, you know, um, not to downplay the surgeon, um, because we, I know some wonderful otologists um, here in the Valley of the Sun in Arizona, mm-hmm. uh, in Phoenix, and uh, they... Otologist is someone, or a neurootologist, is someone who um, works with just ears, if you will. Um, so there's the ENT, and then they take an, another extra year just to to work on the ears. And in 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 Phoenix, we have some very good neurootologists. However. I hate to say this because it sounds like I'm degrading what they do. They do a wonderful job, but they're kind of a one and done type of thing. So it's really, I think, important that, would you say it's important to develop a relationship with the audiologist that you're going to be working with? Because that's who's really going to walk you through the whole step or someone like yourself or how do you prepare someone for the journey? Because it is a journey, I'm assuming. It is. Yeah. I I will say it takes two. Mm-hmm. It takes two to tango. Mm-hmm. I think having a great relationship with your surgeon and having a great relationship with your audiologist, I think overall it enhances your journey. I love my surgeon. I thought he was wonderful. And I had encountered other surgeons previously that I just didn't have a good relationship with. I felt like I wasn't being heard. Mm-hmm. And so... And that's okay. You know, it just wasn't a good fit. That's not to say that they are, you know, a horrible otologist or, you know, that's not what I'm saying at all. I think it just wasn't a good fit. So if you find a good fit for Mm -hmm. both the neurotologist and your audiologist, I think that's the best of both worlds because you do need a great surgeon to implant that electrode beautifully. Right. Because if it's not, if there's some issues or whatever, and that's very rare and we have fail-safe or fail-proof options available to ensure that that doesn't happen. So, for example, SmartNav, that's something that the um, surgeon can utilize while in the OR to determine like, essentially perfect placement, which uh-huh. is, I really do love that tool that we have. The audiologist, yes, you want to also build that relationship with them because you will be seeing them pretty frequently um, in that first year especially and within those first three to six months it's mm-hmm. there's a lot of follow-up visits mm-hmm. and with an optimally pla- uh, placed internal device an optimally programmed processor that's the best situation that you can have yeah yeah the other thing just for parents if you will of children um i think it's important that i i've learned over the years is when you're deciding on your implantation team and your um, uh, in the surgeon and the audiologist, make sure you, well, no, I don't want to say make sure, but 
be mindful that your child is going to go into the schools if they're not there already. And the schools are not going to understand the accommodation and the needs of that particular child. And you really need a good relationship with your audiologist so that they can be on the team within the school because it doesn't just stop with the programming. And I've, I've had this occur several times where the, the audiologist that programs doesn't go into the schools. So then they call me and I'm like, I, you know, I can tell you my best guess, but I don't have the relationship with this child or this family. So I don't know what's exactly happening here. So um, again, it's not to say anyone's good or bad or indifferent. It's just like you said, you have to have that good fit. And it's something I think um, we all forget about, you know, we, we, we want just this fix. We, okay, this is what we need to do. And in six weeks, the program is going to be done and everything's going to be wonderful. But for, for children or even adults that go into the workplace, they may need additional accommodations, but especially for children, they will need those accommodations in the classroom. And you need to have somebody that's going to be on that team mm -hmm. to help that child through, um, till the point where they can advocate for themselves, Absolutely. which which I'm a huge believer of. But, you know, it's very difficult for an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old to advocate for themselves. 18-year-old mm -hmm. should be. <laughs> so, should. As I tell my, my kiddos, I said, you don't want me in your dorm room with you. So <laughs> you know, let's see what you can do in high school. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Prepare you for college. So, yeah. Right. So we've gone over that, you know, cochlear implant is available to children under the age of a year now. Um, and then how about the other end of the spectrum <laughs> going all the way up until um, late adulthood? Is it, Are you ever too old to get a cochlear implant? No, you're never too old to get a cochlear implant. Okay. If you are healthy enough to withstand general anesthesia for the time that you're in the OR, and you have no, you know, extenuating medical circumstances, you're never too old to get a cochlear implant. And we have 102-year-olds getting a cochlear implant and doing very well. I mean, yes, we don't know how long our lives will be, but if improving your quality of life for the X amount of years that you have left on this earth, why not? And so we have, we have a couple of stories that we have for our cochlear blogs where a 102-year-old recipient is really loving his cochlear implant. So, no, you're never too old. Well, that's, that's comforting to know because, you know, as, as people age, and, and I've known people even in my family, um, they have macular, so they're losing their eyesight. Mm -hmm. um, and then they have hearing loss, and they're losing their hearing. And now they're in their 90s, and they can't see, and they can't hear. Mm -hmm. And that's so, that's so frustrating, and yeah. it's so hard to to lose what you were we were able to do mm -hmm. previously and so yeah you're you're never too old to get a cochlear implant and i think if if that improves your quality of life however long you're you're at, you're alive afterwards it, why not yeah okay yeah so that i had a patient come in yesterday no monday and she's 100 Oh, wow. Still living in her own home. She doesn't drive. <laughs> she gave that up about 10 years ago. But um, And bless her heart. I mean, we've done everything we can possibly do, and there's just nothing left there. And trying to even just have the discussion with her is, is really difficult. <laughs> so I'm so happy you brought us some information that's I'm in so writing. So that, we can <laughs> do, that might be easier for her. <laughs> but, exactly. Yeah. So great. And then um, we haven't really talked about it, but if you could please tell us the difference between uh, a cochlear implant and a bone anchored hearing aid and when someone or the surgeon decides one versus the other, it seems like the bone anchored hearing aid is kind of going away from popularity, but I'm sure there's times when it's still beneficial. 
Absolutely. So for a bone anchored hearing device, it really depends on the type of hearing loss you have. So typically for a cochlear implant, we have sensory neural hearing loss. So the hair cells in the inner ear are not functioning like they should be. And so with a bone anchored hearing device, our Baja, we have a Baja 6 Max and we have an Osea. So there's two different types of bone bone conduction hearing solutions that we provide. The Baja 6 Max can be placed on a soft band. So for the pediatric patients or for people who are not yet um, ready or want to do a surgical procedure, we have a soft band and we also have a sound arc. It looks essentially like the, gl- the legs of a glass of glasses on a headband and it's positioned in the appropriate way for where the placement should be for the bone anchored hearing device. And what that bone anchored hearing device does is it stimulates the cochlea directly. So it bypasses any, um, so say for example, someone does not have an outer ear or an ear canal or things like that where they can put a hearing device in to transmit that signal, but they have normal hearing sensitivity in those outer hair cells and inner hair cells of the inner ear. So think about the headband that you put on when you're getting your hearing tested. That is stimulating your hearing nerve directly. And so if that is in the normal to moderate range, we are able to provide access to that sound with the bone conduction hearing solutions that we provide. So again, if they don't have an outer ear or an ear canal opening for a hearing aid, if they have frequent ear infections uh, or a a draining ear, you know, things like that where they can't have an ear mold or ear device Mm -hmm. for a hearing aid in place. So not necessarily having sensory neural hearing loss, depending on the criteria, you can have mixed conductive and sensory neural hearing loss and mm-hmm. still be a candidate for bone conduction hearing solutions. But just think of all the other factors that go into play. If you have your fingers in your ears to plug them up, that's essentially a conductive, but you know, you're stimulating conductive hearing loss, loss of energy and sound as it transmits through your ear system. And so the bone conduction hearing solutions would stimulate that hearing nerve directly to send the sound to in order to send the sounds up to the brain. Mm-hmm. And if you have normal hearing sensitivity on the other side, or you know you have some hearing loss on that ear that has the bone conduction hearing solution, it's stimulating the better hearing nerve. So whether that's the same side as the device or the opposite, you're still stimulating a hearing nerve via the vibrations mm-hmm. of the bone conduction device. Mm-hmm. So I, on our first episode, we talked about Emily being um, young audiologist and Dr. Day being old audiologist. Um, just to kind of give a sense of how technology has progressed and FDA approvals have progressed, bone-anchored hearing aids were originally released for single-sided deafness. Yep. You probably don't remember that but I do. <laughs> uh, but now the cochlear implant has been re- approved by the FDA for mm-hmm. single-sided deafness. So again, that just shows you we're constantly changing. Technology is constantly changing, whether it be your hearing aid device uh, or hearing technology, bone-anchored hearing aids, or in this case, cochlear implants so yeah absolutely and i think it's really you know having this complete profile of options for people to choose from Mm -hmm. whether they want a bone conduction hearing device for single-sided deafness or you know if they want to go with the cochlear implant you know Mm -hmm. it really just provides people abundance of opportunity and options to choose from and i i think that's a great thing yeah Personally, I don't like being limited. I think the sky's the limit, if anything, and then you got to go above that. But I don't think that's possible. But just having that option uh, option of yeah. having a complete profile for what fits you and your lifestyle. Right. What do you hope to gain from this device? Yeah. And what do I need to do to change it? I think Cochlear is just a wonderful company that provides these options. And I love, I love that. Great. Okay. All right. So... Um, because you're here um, mm-hmm. today with us, and we actually have a question that somebody did send in to us, um, and it relates to um, the field of cochlear implantation. Um, so the question was, um, if I have tinnitus, can cochlear implants help relieve that tinnitus perception? 
And that's a great question. We do get that a lot. And of course, it would depend whether or not they are a cochlear implant candidate because mm-hmm. there are people who experience tinnitus in one or both ears that have normal hearing sensitivity mm-hmm. or benefit well from amplification. But subjectively, a lot of our recipients with single-sided deafness who go on to get a cochlear implant, subjectively, they report a reduction in the presence or the noticeable presence of their tinnitus. It stays possibly perhaps the same, but I will say the majority of the time they're saying that it subsides, goes away altogether. It just, it's not as noticeable, especially um, when you get the cochlear implant and when you have it on and you're going about your day. I do have a disclaimer, you know, I, I don't have single-sided deafness, so I'm not, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that, you know, I can't speak for that. I can say that my own personal tinnitus has subsided over time um, to the point where I barely recognize it. However, tinnitus being the unknown phenomena that we have, um, and it's still a lot of mysterious, where you know, it's mysterious questions or mysteriousness about it of what causes tinnitus. Yes, hearing loss can be correlated to it, but also lack of sleep, caffeine, not and stress, like all all these all these other things trigger tinnitus. So I do make it known that yes, it may subside. And you may notice that. However, there may be other factors that can contribute to it in your environment, like stress, sleep, you know, things like that. Um, but in short, <laughs> to summarize, <laughs> yes, uh, the majority of our recipients who have single-sided deafness and they are a cochlear implant candidate and recipient, they report a, a tremendous improvement in um, tinnitus or the presence of tinnitus. The localization, as we had talked about, and listening and background noise, they do report that. Okay, which would make which would make sense, you know, if I do believe tinnitus has many factors to it um, that that we go through with each patient, but um, hearing loss is one of them. Um, and so, if you make the brain happy in that arena, you know, um, that typically can decrease the presence of tinnitus. Um, but you do have the other factors <laughs> that are causing it that you have to work on as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the, you know, the reason this is a good question is because I know all of you out there are Googling tinnitus right now. Yes. <laughs> and I don't like I have Google. some because we're talking about it, but like I have some tinnitus. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so you can't just say, hey, I have tinnitus, I need a cochlear implant. Okay, you have to be a candidate to do Oops, this. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but if you aren't a candidate and you have tinnitus, as we've said before, Dr. Schmidt is an expert at tinnitus. Give her a call, make an appointment, come see her. You will be blown away by what she can do for you. She cannot get rid of your tinnitus. She can't cure you. No cure, no cure. But... She can certainly make your life more pleasant and quieter. Yes, (laughs) that's the goal. (laughs) Great. Well, Emily, Dr. Camacho, thank you so much for joining us for two episodes. Boy, we really got fortunate to have you here twice. And all the wonderful information. It's really been helpful. and, And certainly for me, I've learned a lot. Definitely, definitely. Great information um, for myself as an audiologist, plus all of you listening out there. Hopefully we answered a lot of your questions. Right. And if you happen to see the movie, Sound of Metal, because that's what started all of this, just enjoy the movie for what it is. Don't think that that's what cochlear (laughs) implants, that's why we had two episodes dedicated (laughs) to this, to set the record straight and hearing aids aren't enough. Okay, well, we're going to go to our next, uh, our next portion, and that's tips and tricks. And I know last week, or last episode, excuse me, you gave us some great tips and tricks. Do you have another one for us? Oh, that's, you're putting me on the spot here. Yes. Huh. I mean, I, I know last time I talked about, you know, working smarter, not harder. And I guess I can talk a little bit about the deaf gain some more here. So Mm -hmm. the benefits of having hearing devices. And the access to Bluetooth connectivity and things like that. Mm-hmm. Tips and tricks. Always try to do the Bluetooth. Mm-hmm. And I'm going back to using accessories and using all of that. But speak, advocate for yourself. I think being your best advocate right. will go a long way. 
Uh, mm-hmm. like you had mentioned about accommodations, knowing mm-hmm. what works for you, mm-hmm. making that known, setting yourself up for success with communication strategies. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, you can't hear very well on your right side, position yourself to where that person is on your left instead. So really be mindful of your own environment. You don't have to necessarily, you know, request formal accommodations you know when you're going out for a gathering with friends you should do that in the workplace and school right um but just set yourself up for success let them know i can hear you but i struggle here Mm -hmm. work with me and i'll work with you to make sure that we have a good dialogue good conversation and no communication breakdown i think that's important super yes absolutely okay great and then um susan you have a quote of the day for us Sure, I do. Um, Let's try this one. Um, The hearing ear is always found close to the speaking tongue by Ralph Waldo Waldo Emerson. Yeah. So there you go. So in other words, um, it might be nice just to listen and hear (laughs) before we speak. (laughs) Always good practice. Yes. I would like to thank Dr. Emily Camacho and Dr. Susan Schmidt for joining me again today. And I'd like to thank you, our listeners. Um, We so enjoy having this podcast and we hope you're finding it educational and informational as well. If you have any questions for us, please post them on our Facebook page or email us at questions at Arizona Balance. Arizona is spelled out. So questions at ArizonaBalance.com. And don't forget to hit subscribe as we are always talking about different topics and you don't want to miss any of our future episodes. For a free copy of Dr. Day's book, Re-Engage with Life and Family, just visit our website at azbalanceandhearing.com. So Arizona's abbreviated azbalanceandhearing.com and click the box requesting a free copy. Or you can call our office at 602-265-265. 9,000, and you can request the free copy that way as well. Remember, hearing care is health care, and treating your hearing loss is the number one modifiable risk factor for reducing your risk of developing dementia. Treating your hearing loss has also been shown to reduce your risk of falls, decrease the experience of tinnitus, increase your social engagement, and decrease depression. Don't put it off any longer. So again, we want to thank you. I want to thank uh, Robin, our producer, and Dave Pratt's Star Worldwide Networks for allowing us to come in today and record. This has been a lot of fun. And I want to thank you, ABHA, partnering with you to better balance, better hearing, better better life. life. Thank you for listening to the ABHA Listen and Learn podcast with Dr. Dana Day and Dr. Susan Schmidt. Join us next time as we discuss the latest issues related to hearing and balance healthcare. Plus, hear any of our past episodes on demand 24-7 on StarWorldWideNetworks.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.